The following audio is from Shiloh Presbyterian Church in Raleigh, North Carolina. More information about Shiloh Presbyterian Church is available at shilohopc.org. Please remain standing for the reading of God's Word. Turn in your scriptures, please, to Matthew chapter 9, and we'll read the first 13 verses. Matthew chapter 9, verses 1 to 13. Well, let's hear the word of God. And getting into a boat, he crossed over and came to his own city. And behold, some people brought to him a paralytic lying on a bed. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Take heart, my son, your sins are forgiven. And behold, some of the scribes said to themselves, This man is blaspheming. But Jesus, knowing their thoughts, said, Why do you think evil in your hearts? For which is easier to say, Your sins are forgiven, or to say, Rise and walk? But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he then said to the paralytic, Rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And he rose and went home. When the crowd saw it, they were afraid, and they glorified God who had given such authority to men. And Jesus passed on from there. He saw a man called Matthew sitting at the tax tax booth, and he said to him, Follow me. And he rose and followed him. And as Jesus reclined at table in the house, behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. And when the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, Why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? But when he heard he said, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. For I came not to call the righteous, but sinners." Amen, and thanks be to God for his word. Let's pray. Lord, we rejoice in this good word, and we ask you now that you would open this good word to us this morning, that you would give me words to speak, almighty God, which come from your very throne, and that you would minister in the hearts of all your people according to our various needs and spiritual states. Lord God, be pleased, uh, we pray to work in us that which is pleasing in your sight. To the glory of your great name we ask this. Amen. Please be seated. Well, those of you who were here last week heard a sermon by Pastor Ocken, I think, uh, entitled, What Sort of Man Is This? It's really the question of the whole gospel, Uh, It's certainly the question that dominates Matthew's gospel at this point. Uh, Verse 27 of the previous chapter, What sort of man is this, that even the winds and sea obey him? And Matthew has set out to answer that question, What sort of man is this, in a multifaceted fashion. What sort of man is this Jesus? He is a man who forgives sins. And he's a man, furthermore, who associates himself 
with sinners, why he even sits at table and eats with sinners. Jesus is a man, not any man, of course, the Son of Man, the Son of Man who forgives sins and associates with sinners. It's a message, is it not, which really goes to the heart of the person and work of our Lord Jesus Christ. It goes to the heart of the gospel, and it goes to the heart of Christ's relationship with the Christian. And so this morning we're going to learn much about our Lord, and then much about his relationship to people like us, sinners. It is a blessed passage indeed, which assures the Christian of hell subdued and peace with heaven and communion everlastingly with the Lord Jesus Christ. Very simply in the first eight verses, we see that Jesus forgives sins. Jesus forgives sins. And then secondly, in verses 9 to 13, Jesus eats with sinners. Jesus forgives sins. What sort of man is this? The son of man who had nowhere to lay his head. Uh, The one who, as you heard last week, is the great creator over all, who gives all and demands all. Yet the one who demands all of his people is also the one who gives all through forgiveness. Forgiveness, the most precious gift and commodity known to man. The English word forgive comes from a Latin word. And that Latin word means to give completely without reservation. To give completely without reservation. Reservation to forgive sins is to pardon sins completely without reservation. When Christ forgives sins completely, absolutely, and as an irrevocable gift, he grants forgiveness to his people. And that's what he granted here for this paralytic. It appears he may already have granted it to the paralytic because it says when Jesus saw their faith, it's a little bit unclear what that means. Did they have faith in him as the Messiah or did they have faith in him as a healer? It matters not ultimately because Jesus says there and then in the instant, take heart, my son, your sins are forgiven. Your sins are forgiven. Forgiven. The Greek there is very clear. Instantaneously, in the moment, without reference to anything uh, the paralytic has done, or without reference to anything that would be done, Christ says to him, your sins are forgiven. The needy come to him for help, and they walk away with forgiveness. Notice what our Lord says to him. He says there in verse 2, take heart, my son. Take heart, my son. Actually, Jesus calls him a child. I don't know why the ESV uh, translates it as son. It says, my child. And it's very unusual in the New Testament to have that word for child used when somebody is not your child. In other words, Jesus is saying something about his relationship with this paralytic. My child, my little one. 
He's speaking of the intimacy that exists between himself as an elder brother to one of his younger brothers. The relationship between our elder brother and us as younger brothers and sisters is so unequal that he speaks of this one as a child. Christ draws us under himself. Yes, we have a heavenly father, but it's almost as if we have two fathers in heaven. Christ, our elder brother, looking down upon us, protectively saying to us, you are my children. And what's interesting here is that Christ, before he heals this man, declares him to be forgiven. And it's the first of a number of references, well, not actually the first, the second of a number of references wherein sin and sickness are connected in our passage. Actually, we can go back to chapter 8 and, uh, yes, chapter 8 and verse 17 for the first reference, the healing of Peter's mother. You heard this two weeks ago, I believe. We read this, this was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. He took our illnesses and bore our diseases. He took our illnesses. Christ took our illnesses and bore our diseases. In healing this man, he is really dealing with the root cause of his sickness, which is sin. Calvin writes this, Christ appears here to promise to the paralytic something different from what he had requested, healing. But as he intends to bestow health on the body, listen, he begins with removing the cause of the disease and at the same time reminds the paralytic of the origin of his disease. Now, we're not saying this man was paralyzed because of an individual act of sin. We're saying sickness is in the world because of sin, because of the fall of man. Sickness and death is the wages of sin. And this really leads us, does it not, into two blessed gospel realities. The spiritually stricken may find in Christ complete rest, complete ease, complete and absolute forgiveness and peace with Christ. The spiritually stricken may find forgiveness in Christ. And the second is like it, the physically stricken who come to Christ by faith also have hope of an eternal life without the ravages of sickness and death. You see, God Almighty has great concern both for body and for soul of his children. That's why Christ says, before he says your sins are forgiven, he says, take heart. Take heart, my child. Take heart. It's another way of saying, is it not? Fear not. Do not be dismayed. Do not be discouraged. Uh, In one way or another, at least, I think, on 400 occasions, Scripture in one way or another tells us not to be afraid. To take heart. Do not be terrified. Do not be discouraged. Do not fear. Over 400 occasions... 
in Holy Scripture, God says to his people, fear not. Just as Christ says it here to this paralytic, take heart, he says also to the Christian today, take heart. Fear not. Do not be afraid. Why? Because not being afraid is a central consequence of being forgiven. Think on that. When you were forgiven, dear Christian, all your greatest fears were washed away. It's not just that your sins were removed, but all the terrors associated with your sin were also removed. The fear, the shame, the terror. I mean, this is what Paul is speaking about in Romans chapter 8, is it not? Verse 31 What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? Don't fear. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or peril, or sword? He answers this, no. In all these things, we are more than conquerors. We are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. Do not fear is the natural consequence of being forgiven by God. Because he has moved the, removed the greatest obstacle to your well-being that could ever exist, your own sin and your alienation from him. In removing that, he assures us every other obstacle to your eternal well-being shall in time also be removed. Make no mistake, dear friends. Take heart if your sins are forgiven. At times of death and tragedy and sorrow, the world is full of platitudes. You know what a platitude is, don't you? It's an empty saying. Meaningless, without substance. And the world trots them out as if they're some kind of balm to the soul. There is no balm to the soul better than these words, dear Christian. Take heart, your sins are forgiven. Because forgiveness restores what has been lost. Forgiveness unites the alienated. Forgiveness builds confidence and trust in uncertain relationships. The Puritan Thomas Adams said, Sins are so remitted as if they had never been committed. Isn't that wonderful? Bunyan would say, no child of God sins to that degree as to make himself incapable of forgiveness. 
Friends, are you hearing the depths of the forgiveness that Christ offers his brethren here today? Are you struggling with the sins of your past? Here is the remedy in Christ Jesus. Are you failing to fight the sin of the present? Herein is the remedy in Christ Jesus. Are you finding sin too attractive presently? Herein lies the remedy in Christ Jesus. And friends, we have to situate this truth in our heart. The forgiveness of sins is a reality that objectively never changes. It never changes. It doesn't ebb or flow with the tide. It's not brighter on days of sunshine and dimmer on days of cloud. Forgiveness is for times of hardship. Forgiveness is for times of blessing and every occasion between the two. When God forgives a sinner, sins remain forgiven. Do we understand that? Whatever you've done in the past, if you're forgiven, you're forgiven. Really, completely, without reservation. But not everyone hears that message and loves it. The scribes are one such example, are they not? Verse 3, behold, some of the scribes said to themselves, this man is blaspheming. You see, they rightly concluded, the scribes rightly concluded, that if Jesus is forgiving sins, then Jesus must be claiming to be God. They got that right. But they wrongly concluded that Jesus was not God and therefore was guilty of the greatest blasphemy. Jesus goes on to say in verse 6, But that you may know the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He says, I am the Son of Man. I have authority to forgive sins. Yes, this is the Son of Man who earlier has nowhere to lay his head, verse 20 of the previous chapter. And that same Son of Man in his humanity and in his poverty who came to earth to dwell in the midst of us. That's why we sang two Christmas hymns previously. That same Son of Man is also the Daniel 7 Son of Man of glory, who is clothed presently in majesty and power and glory, and one who has power to forgive sins. And to prove this point, look what he does in verse 5. He says to them, verse 4, why do you think evil in your hearts? They've thought evil of the Son of Man. He says, for which is it easier to say your sins are forgiven or to say rise and walk? Well, it's easier to say your sins are forgiven, isn't it? Because nobody can ever prove that. I can say that to you now without any proof whatsoever. It's not like we've got a measuring tool in that sense of forgiven sins in the moment. But we can prove or disprove whether somebody is healed or not, can't we? They'll get up and take their bed and go home. So Jesus says this, then that you may know the Son of Man has power to forgive sins. I'm going to do the harder thing and heal this man. And he says to the man, rise, pick up your bed and go home. And the text simply states this, and he rose and went home. That we may know the Son of Man has authority over sins. 
he displays authority over the harder thing to say your sins. He says, rise, get up, and walk. You hear what he's saying? He's saying, I'm the son of man. I'm the Daniel 7 son of man, clothed in authority and power. The one who has the power over sickness, over life, over death, over healing. And he says, I've come to forgive sins. And we see another reaction to him in verse 8. The crowd see it, they're afraid, and they glorify God because they'd never seen such authority given to men. Again, it's unclear whether this is true faith or not. We've seen other people glorify God, follow Christ at his miracles, but not because they were true converts. We've seen two reactions to the forgiveness of sins and the healing of the blind man. Unsure reactions, one clearly unbelieving, one in doubt. But friends, what cannot be unclear or in doubt here today is your reaction to this man. It cannot be left in doubt this day. I want to speak to any here today who are kind of unsure about Jesus. Uh, you, you think you believe in him, you, you, you're not sure, you, you, you want to trust in him, but there's doubts within yourself. I want to ask you, dear friend, do you sense any unwillingness in Jesus Christ to withhold forgiveness from this man? Do you sense, dear friend, any mean-spiritedness in giving grace to God's people? Any sense that he expects more from the paralytic? That he wants the paralytic, as it were, spiritually to meet him halfway Oh, friends, there's no sense of this in the text whatsoever, because there is no sense of this in Jesus Christ at all. There is no sense of an unwillingness to forgive, to extend grace. Friend, you don't need faith that can move a mountain to be saved. The smallest faith, just like the greatest faith, lays hold of the same strong saviour. The smallest faith lays hold of the strong Savior. All you need is faith. You just need to believe, even with with great weakness in your faith. You just need to repent of your sins and believe. And Christ, all his strength, is yours without reservation. I want to speak to those who are without Christ today. You know you're without Christ uh, you're an unbeliever, you're, you're standing away at a distance from him. And I want to say to you today, dear friend, if you remain in that state, you will remain unforgiven. Forgiveness is on offer today for each and every one of your sins. But if you refuse Christ, you remain unforgiven. And all the sins of your life will pursue you to the grave and beyond as you stand before the great white throne of God. And you will give account for every thought, word, and deed which has broken the law of God. And you will be condemned to hell forever. And we wouldn't have it that way for you. The Gospels tell us what you must do. 
It's not scale the highest mountain. It's not build up your works so that somehow you think they can outweigh your negative works and your sins because you can't do that anyway. It's this, repent and believe. Receive Christ as Lord and Savior. And your sins are forgiven as if you never committed them. That's good news. And Jesus is a great Savior. I commend him to you. Scripture commands you to receive him. And I want to speak also to you, dear Christian, many of you here today, knowing Christ personally. Hear again the blessedness of these words, as if Christ himself has spoken them to you. Well, he has. This is his word. Imagine, if we will, our Savior saying, Your sins, not in part but the whole, are nailed to my cross, and you bear them no more. Take heart. Your sins are forgiven. They're gone. Dear Christian, don't live with guilt of past sin. Confess your sin, trust in God for forgiveness, and get on with life. Take heart. Be strong. Do not be discouraged. Your sins are forgiven. But Jesus does more than just forgive sins. I want to be brief on this next part. Jesus does more than just forgive sins, does he not? He's the Son of God who's come down from heaven to dwell in the midst of sinners. To dwell in the midst of sinners. To call sinners under himself and then to be openly seen in association with the very same. And verses 9 to 13 demonstrate that perfectly. He forgives sins and he calls sinners. He associates with them. He eats with sinners. We see this firstly in who he calls into his service in verse 9. Jesus passed on from there. He saw a man called Matthew sitting at the tax booth, and he said to him, follow me. And he rose and followed him. Put simply, friends, in the eyes of the Jews, Matthew is a despised enemy of the state. He's an outcast. People hate him. He's a servant of the Romans. He's probably even pocketing some of the taxes he's claiming fraudulently. In other words, friends, the kind of sinners that Jesus came to call are the ones that even society, contemporary society, balked at having association with. And by a simple word of Christ's power, follow me, The same word that calmed the storms, which spoke worlds into existence, speaks into the very heart of Matthew, says, follow me. And Matthew gets up and is called by Christ in the very moment and follows him as a disciple called to be an apostle. And yet this is that Jesus calls such sinners under himself because then Jesus goes onto the very turf of these sinners in verse 10. We find him in verse 10 reclining at table with tax collectors and sinners. We understand what that means, don't we? He's gone into Matthew's home 
And all of Matthew's sinful friends, all his tax collectors are there. They're sat at table. Actually, they're lying down at table. As relaxed as our Lord can be in the company of notorious sinners. They were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. Here is Christ communing with disciples. Just think on, with with sinners, sorry, with sinners. Just think on that for a moment. Here is Christ, the Holy Son of God, communing with sinners. He's not ashamed to be in their presence. We ought not think he's simply there passing time, having some kind of uh, Galilean Super Bowl party. That's not what's going on here. Do we really think he's going to call Matthew out of his sin to be a disciple and go and sit at his table just to revert to the kind of sinful company that those men kept? No, he's gone there to minister. He's gone there to show them what we saw in his baptism, that the waters of baptism, polluted uh, metaphorically by the sins of the people who John had been baptizing, were poured then on the head of the Christ. And he's come to say, I've come to be associated with sinners. No, he's come, he says, to be united to sinners. That those who by faith love the Lord are united to him inseparably. He's communing with them while he's ministering to them. The self-righteousness of some rears its ugly head again in verse 11. This time it's the Pharisees. Did you notice that? The previous section, the scribes are taking issue. Now it's the Pharisees. The Jewish religious establishment really shown they know nothing of Jesus. They know nothing of righteousness. They know nothing of forgiveness. And as Christ says, they know nothing of mercy. They know nothing of him. Really, what kind of sinner says, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? What kind of sinner says, why is the Savior eating with sinners? I'll tell you what kind, a self-righteous kind. To use the language of Proverbs, a stupid kind. Proverbial language, not mine. Those who are so wrapped up in their sense of self-righteousness that they can't even imagine why a saviour would come and be found in the company of sinners. That's why he came. That's why our Lord came. And friends, if you can't see yourself at table with Matthew and these tax collectors and sinners, you might be on the outside with the Pharisees. It's a sobering thought. Let's not think that we are categorically different from the Matthews of this world. We're just not. Like him, we too were born dead in trespasses and sins, and our sins have followed us Every day of our lives, we too are in need of the same kind of rescue. And praise God, he has sent his son to effect that rescue. Calvin again says of these Pharisees, he says, Hypocrites, 
being satisfied and intoxicated with a foolish confidence in their own righteousness, do not consider the purpose for which Christ was sent into the world. And do not acknowledge the depths of evil in which the human race is plunged, or the dreadful wrath and curse of God which lies on all, or the accumulated load of vices which weighs them down. The consequence is they are too stupid to feel the miseries of men or to think of a remedy. Christ is quite clear about such people. He says in verse 12, Those who are well, here's the connection between sin and sickness again, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. He's saying the self-righteous have no need of a savior, but the one who knows he is racked by sin, he or she knows the need for a savior. Friends, to miss this point is to be like those of old. Hosea 6, 6, as we read quoted here, go learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. God desires heart religion, not mere outward conformity to a set of rules. Those who live like this, like these Pharisees, are like those who would spray cologne on a corpse in order to make it less corpse-like. Utterly ineffective. God is interested in the content of your heart. Children, are you listening to this? Are you listening? God is interested in the content of your heart before he is interested in how well you behave. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. Friends, this is true for us all. Because to receive Christ is to be renovated inside and out. It is to be given a new heart. We sang it earlier, did we not? Born to raise the sons of earth. Born to give them second To receive Christ by faith is to be renovated on the inside and on the outside. Friends, our weak and frail bodies are daily breaking down. But they're going to be renewed in Christ. Our souls, racked and bent double by sin, will be straightened out in Christ. But to what are we saved, dear friends? To what are we saved? Yes, it's to the forgiveness of sins. Yes, it's to be righteous in the sight of God. But if we have eyes to see, do we not see here the beautiful picture of Christ himself coming down to us to commune with us, to commune with you, dear Christian, pleased as man with man to dwell. Jesus, our Emmanuel, our God with us, pleased as man with man to dwell. And the heavenly man will dwell with heavenly men and women eternally 
when he comes again in glory and in power. Here he sits at table with sinners. Dear friends, what a remarkable blessing it is that here again this morning in the Lord's Supper, Jesus spiritually will be sitting again with sinners this very day. What we have heard in the word we will put into practice now through sacrament, both of which themselves are a glorious picture of the marriage feast of the Lamb. Who doesn't like a marriage feast? A wedding feast. Eternal blessing. Eternal honors that will rest on Jesus' head. Eternal blessing that he will reflect upon his people. He desires to be with you, dear Christian. Do you hear that? I know there's many distractions right now, friends. Do you hear this? Jesus desires to be with you. You can come again this evening and be with Jesus again. You can worship him on your own tomorrow. You can worship him with your families tomorrow. Christ desires you to be with him and him to be with you. That's the scale of forgiveness that is on offer here today. It's not a forgiveness that Jesus says, you're clean, now go on your way. He says, you're clean, now come into my family. You're clean, now come into my home. Our Lord says, I've gone to prepare a place for you that where I am, dear Christian, you may be also. Thanks be to God for the forgiveness of sins. Let's pray. Merciful God, we bless and we magnify you. Surely there is no God like you. And we give praise and honor and glory unto you. Lord, you have done such remarkable things for us. Help us this day, on the day you have commanded to be holy, to keep it holy, that we might not just be slaves outwardly to mere rules, but we might give our hearts to you, Lord God, in enjoyment of this your day. Work in each one of us, Lord God, that knowledge of forgiveness. Save the lost, we cry out to you, Father in heaven. Be merciful to them. Build up your saints. Assure those who are weak of faith that once forgiven, always forgiven. For we pray this in our Savior's name. Amen.